0: I'm your host, Nick Giacomis, and today I'm speaking with Professor David Putz. David is a professor of anthropology at Penn State University, and his research focuses on the evolution and development of human sexuality and sex differences. They are especially interested in his lab in how sex hormones influence sexual psychology, behavior, and anatomy, and how these traits are shaped by evolution. And so I talked to David about a variety of topics related to sex uh, and sexuality and mate selection and behavior and things like this. We talked about biological sex and how that term is defined. We talked about how biological sex relates to things like gametes, the sex cells like sperm and egg, and to things like gonads, sex chromosomes, hormones, and and all of that biology. We talked about how those things differ between different types of animals, primates and other mammals, birds, uh, turtles, and you know how, how sex is determined and how it expresses itself in different types of organisms. We talked about sexual dimorphism in humans and primates—the uh, tendency for females and males to differ uh, across different traits. We talked about how sexually dimorphic male and female humans are compared to males and females of other primate species like chimpanzees or gorillas. We We talked about how that relates to the evolutionary history of each lineage and how that relates to things like the uh, types of mating behaviors and mating strategies that individuals in these species have. We talked about things like voice and other traits that are sexually dimorphic. So why and how are male and female voices different? What sorts of cues do we listen to in the voices of each other that tell us things about uh, our potential mates? We talked about primate social status hierarchies and how those are formed and structured in humans and non-human primates and how that relates to mating behavior. We talked about things like monogamy and polygyny, and we talked about things like sexual orientation and how that develops and some of the biological factors, the prenatal and perinatal biological factors that play into the development of sexual orientation in humans. And so if you're interested in the topic of biological sex, how it develops, how it evolves, um, why different types of mating systems and mating strategies evolve in humans and other creatures, this is a fascinating episode. We covered a lot of ground. And as always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please support me any way you can, simply by tuning into episodes, liking, sharing, and subscribing, sharing your favorite episodes with friends or family. That's a great way to help the podcast expand. You can also sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com, and you'll get one weekly uh, email there that tells you about podcast updates, such as upcoming guests and topics of discussion, and you'll have access to my long-form science writing, as well as all of the audio and video versions of the podcast. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. David Putz. Yeah, go ahead and uh, tell people who you are Uh, and what you study. Yeah, um,
1: David Putz. I'm a professor of anthropology at Penn State, and uh, I study sex, I guess, sex differences, uh, their evolution and development, especially hormonal causes. And I especially focus on behavior and psychology.
0: Okay. And do you focus mainly on humans? I do. Um, and uh, some work on non-human
1: primates as well, but mostly, uh, most people.
0: So in terms of how the term is used for non-human animals, at least, what is biological sex?
1: Yeah. Biological sex um, refers to um, what we could be talking about a few that a couple of different things. One is that it's like sexual reproduction, which involves producing gametes and, um, you know, fusion of gametes and the DNA from two different parents to form a new individual. Um, But then if we're talking about sexes, like males and females, then that just has to do with gamete size. Um, And so almost every time, you know, uh, (laughs) most species that reproduce sexually have evolved um sexes there are a lot of species that reproduce sexually that don't have sexes at all that is like all the gametes are the same size and roughly there's sort of one um uh, mode in the distribution um but when sexes have evolved they've they've evolved into two different morphs two different sizes there's the small ones and the big ones and um uh you know males are defined as the sex that produces smaller gametes and females produce bigger gametes and um there's a ton of variation across species and the sorts of characteristics that males and females have it doesn't have anything to do with external anatomy or body size or uh, anything like that but if, you know, if you're looking across species and want to know um do they have sexes well then the, the question is are is there one sort of uh normal distribution of gamete size or are there two different size gametes and then if there are then which sexes are males which you know which are males and which are females and that's just determined by which produces bigger gametes and which produces smaller ones?
0: So. And so, what exactly are gametes?
1: Sorry, <laughs> sex cells. So, in, in animals, sperm and ova, and in plants, um, pollen and ova.
0: I see. So, so, so in humans, right? Males are associated with the the sperm, and females with eggs. Sperm right. are much smaller than eggs. Uh, yep. They are less expensive in terms of their. Uh, Metabolic cost to produce, and that that's an important thing here. How how does that start to tie into it? The big one versus the small one, and how that relates to the sexes and how they differ in other ways.
1: Yeah, um, on an evolutionary scale, that probably the we don't know this, but we you know we can guess that an initial greater investment in gametes can lead to um, a parent that invests more in offspring overall, and you tend to see that across um animal species that females defined as the sex producing the bigger gametes tend to invest more in offspring not just in in producing sex cells um but in you know things like in mammals um internal gestation and, and lactation or um in birds um uh, if one sex uh spends more time caring for eggs and and offspring then it's usually females although there's biparental care in a lot of Um, bird species, but, um, that initially larger investment in gamete seems to have been related to, um, increased investment and, and, you know, sort of post-zygotic investment
0: in offspring as well. So I see. And and when we think about investment size, how should we think about that? Should we think about that? Can we think about that in terms of something like calories, like the, the sex with Uh, the big gamete is literally devoting more calories from their body to the offspring or something like that?
1: You can, um, it all has to do with trade-offs and the way that parental investment was defined by um evolutionary biologist robert trivers back in the 70s and i think this is a good definition and the one that most people use is that it's investment in current offspring whether that's calories time whatever um that limits the parents ability to produce more offspring Mm. so that's the trade-off that you know you you have so much you know sort of finite resources and finite time um to spend reproducing um you've been su- able to sequester certain resources from your environment that you could use to produce offspring and care for offspring and you have to sort of make trade-offs there and, and any anything that goes into um caring for and producing um one offspring then can't be used for others or or you know and yeah so that's that's what is meant by parental investment
0: and in sexually reproducing species whether we're talking about humans uh, other mammals other animals are there always two gametes? Or is there ever a third gamete or an intermediate gamete, or is it always two?
1: It's it's always two, and um, we don't know why, but probably the you know there have been mathematical models that have um, shown this, and probably the reason is what's called disruptive selection. That basically it's again you know about trade offs. That there's an advantage to producing um, smaller gametes, which is that you can produce more of them. And there's an advantage to producing large gametes, which is that they're higher in quality. They have more cellular resources that can increase the, you know, the survival and success of the um, the fertilized thing, the zygote. Um, and, but you can't do both. Again, you know, finite resources. And so, um, you know, sort of intermediate-sized gametes would be sort of jack-of-all-trades, master of none, that it would actually, in a sort of competitive situation, lose out to the producers of smaller gametes that specialize in quantity and larger gametes that specialize in quality and so as a result <clears throat> um it's you know two two sexes like se- the sexes what's called anisogamy has evolved multiple times independently and it's always two <laughs> um, And you hear sometimes in um you know media uh, uh pieces about oh you know there's uh tens of thousands of sexes in this uh, fungus or something but it, that's actually different those are mating types and they don't have more than two different sized gametes
0: so. I see so there's always yeah. there's always two gametes and yeah mm-hmm. I, I think what one thing that you said is important there uh, sex has actually evolved multiple times so there's there's separate branches of the tree of life right. and sex that's has right. evolved you know de novo at, at different points um, uh, in the branches of that tree of life but in each case you know despite any differences in the details there are always two gametes one one is the big expensive one one is the small cheap one that's right and so um i want to get into you know talking about things like sexual selection and how mate preference mate preferences and stuff and mating strategies relate relate to some of this stuff um but why don't we just start off by having you talk about what is the difference between natural selection and sexual selection
1: good question um So natural selection is usually, now. maybe I'll start with sexual selection because that's a little bit easier. Sexual selection is defined as, I would call it a a kind of natural selection that favors traits that win mating opportunities. Um, And so in species that that have sexes and compete for mates, there are multiple ways that you could win mates by attracting them or by um, fighting off or threatening your same-sex competitors or, you know, scramble competition is another way of competing for mates where you're just like locating mates um and there's competition to be quicker to get to those um mates but sexual selection favors those sorts of traits ones that contribute to mating opportunities and then natural selection which is you know it's a little bit confusing because you know is it different or is um sexual selection a kind of natural selection sometimes people refer to the other kind of selection as ecological selection and that favors traits that enhance survival it could also be like a offspring survival or care for offspring or anything like that but basically it's everything that's not sexual selection um and darwin sort of noticed sexual selection because he was thinking about you know he had this grand theory about how organisms evolve the traits that they have and he thought you know well you know organisms seem really well designed for surviving and reproducing given their conditions of life that you know uh saguaro cacti are plants and plants notoriously need water and yet these plants are adapted to living in a desert with low water and he sort of noticed like all these you know finches that seem to be adapted to the kinds of food they're eating and so on um and so he's thinking that way and then he started thinking about characteristics of organisms like say peacock's tail feathers and thought he said a peacock made him sick to his stomach which is you know sort of an odd reaction to, it seems like an attractive bird to me but anyway um and what the reason why is because it seemed like major counterexamples to what he had been saying at, you know how does natural selection favor a trait that seems really costly to produce and maintain peacocks are prey for tigers it's got to be make them hard you know easier to detect by by tigers and harder to to get away from tigers and so we thought hey, how, how do I understand a trait like that how does natural selection you know explain a, a characteristic like that and he thought you know sometimes selection can favor a trait uh even if it's costly to survival if it compensates by increasing mating opportunities and so maybe male peafowl have these traits because um even if it's costly to survival it more than compensates by increasing their access to mate so it increases their reproduction overall um and so a lot of times we notice sexual selection when it produces a trait that actually doesn't make sense under ordinary natural selection or ecological selection um but it's not necessary that that those t- types of selection are working in opposite directions. They could both yeah. fit the kinds of traits. Yeah.
0: yeah, And it's, you know, it's obviously convenient to talk about natural or ecological selection versus sexual selection, especially in cases where you have these weird phenotypes that seem to defy a survival-based explanation. But ultimately these two things are sort of like inseparable because you have to be good enough at surviving to get a mating opportunity and you have to be good enough at winning the attention of, of, uh, potential sexual partners. And you can only do that if you can survive long enough to, to get in front of them. So at the end of the day, they kind of converge in a sense.
1: Yeah. Right. And, you know, in the final analysis, what, what selection favors are, are traits that result in more offspring. And so, um, you know, there are multiple ways of accomplishing that. And, you know, lots of species have, uh, very short lifespans, um, but are, are successful reproducers, and so it just depends on the species and their conditions of life whether selection tends to favor, you know, longer survival and low low probability of mortality, or or short lives and high probability mortality. Just what in that species in that in their uh, environment what le- led to more offspring in the
0: evolutionary past. Mm-hmm. So so we've talked about gametes in all sexually reproducing species that have evolved, there's always two gametes. There's always a, a big one and a small one, one that's more metabolically expensive and one that's more metabolically cheap. But oftentimes when you talk about biological sex, you hear people talking about things like sex chromosomes or gonads and other biological factors like hormones. How do all of these things sort of map map together? And, and by default, I, I guess let's just take primates as our sort of default animal group that we'll think about. So how does sex relate to things like gametes and chromosomes and gonads? And is one of these more fundamental than the others?
1: That's a really good question. First, I just want to clarify that um, I think you said something like in every every time that sexual reproduction exists, there are different sexes, but there are se- species that reproduce sexually that don't have sexes that have, you know, they're, they don't have different size gametes. But when mm. sexes have evolved in sexually reproducing species, there have been two.
0: But I so, so yeah, there's, yeah. there's okay. species that sexually reproduce, but reproduce, they don't have but two just sexes. Have, yeah,
1: like uh, you know, blue there's an a blue-green algae called uh, Chlamydomonas that um, they, yeah, they reproduce sexually. They produce gametes, um, but they're all the same size. They don't have oh. anisogamy. It's called iso same gammy, gametes. Anisogamy not same gametes. But so they don't yeah, they don't they have just one one size gamete. But when is, is the statement
0: ahead. I made true for the animal kingdom? Oh
1: probably mostly that's true. Question. Mostly <laughs> I true. I teach this stuff, but I don't do research on it. So let me think. Um,
0: I know it's kind of a tough question yeah, because you yeah, yeah. talk well, about the whole just, tree of life and if there's one exception, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um,
1: yeah, and that that's kind of you know something I love about studying this stuff is um the the incredible diversity Uh, within species like in humans and then across species it just makes it some so interesting to think about and study and and I always feel like that whenever I tell my students anything I'm like yeah there's probably an exception to this you know even if I don't know about it um but uh okay so given sexes what about these associations with sex chromosomes gonads uh other characteristics yeah, there's no necessary association, and I'll just give you some examples from other, other animal species to to, to illustrate the point, and then we can talk about people because I know that there's a lot of, you know, thinking and ink spilt and emotion about you know human sexes and and so on, um, but there are plenty of animal species, uh, vertebrate species, in which um, the sexes are genetically identical, um, hmm. and so you've got species like say um, some turtles where sex is temperature dependent. And it varies across species, whether, um, you know, the the eggs closer to the middle of the clutch of eggs tend to be warmer. And so sometimes those develop into males, sometimes into females, but there are no genetic differences between the sexes. Um, sex is just determined by the environment, by, the, by temperature. And then there are other species like, say, um, sequentially hermaphroditic fish, um, like the bluehead wrasse is an example, where um there there's a tropical fish females are yellow males are sort of blue and black and i think they have a, like a white stripe um and um again no genetic difference at all between the sexes and they live in sort of they live in a reef and the male um defends the reef and has multiple females in there and um it, you know, as a consequence, has high mating success if a male's a territorial male because he has access to lots of females. If the male is removed because he dies or he's eaten by a predator or an experimenter takes the male away, the biggest female changes into a male. And, um, if that's, ha- you know, within sort of minutes to hours, um, her behavior changes. <laughs> she becomes territorial and starts to court females. And then over the next, um, and then her pattern of gene expression changes to, um, you know, male typical patterns of gene expression, her ovaries atrophy and the testes grow and her external anatomy changes. So by two weeks, she now no longer looks like a female. She looks fully like a male. She is, she, is her body open. now going to produce the other gamete? Yeah, it produces uh, produces sperm now. And again, there is no difference at all genetically between them. So, you know, the idea that like the essence of maleness is having a Y chromosome or something um, isn't right. Uh, It really is just about gamete size and, 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 you know, birds also, I mean, they're, they're Mm -hmm. also have genetic sex determination, but there's the other way around. So that uh, females are are the heterogametic sex. they're ZW, whereas males are ZZ. Um, So yeah, there's nothing about um, genes or um, chromosomes or anything like that, that, that is, you know, sort of fundamental to sex. Um, It's really about gamete size. And, um, and same thing with like, you know, the traits that evolve to be associated with that. I mean, there are so-called sex role reverse species, including some birds where, um, females are bigger and more aggressive with each other, more competitive for mates. Um, so yeah, that varies. Yeah. So,
0: so, so it sounds like another way of saying that is, you know, in some species, there is a strong genetic component as to what gamete is. Going to be right. produced. Um, yeah. So, like your chromosome your sex chromosome, say in a primate, will determine which gamete um, is going to be produced. In other species, you gave the example of turtles; it's entirely environmental. The males and females are genetically identical; they don't have separate sex chromosomes. Um, you know, things like temperature determining which gamete gets produced. But in any case, sort of the common denominator here is something ultimately is pointing to which of the two gametes you're going to produce if there are two sexes in that species.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, sort of if you think about The evolutionary past of any particular species, then there were, as long as there are separate selection pressures operating on males and females, in other words, the traits that enable males to leave more offspring are different to some degree uh, than the traits that enable females to leave more offspring, then you've got sexual uh, selection pressures sort of pulling the two sexes apart. And how do you accomplish that, especially given that males and females? are the same species and have either identical DNA, like, you know, in bluehead wrasses or in some turtle species or nearly identical DNA, like in humans where, you know, males and females have all the same DNA, except do you have a few genes that genes that are expressed on the Y chromosome, or do you have two copies of the X? Um, And so how does selection pull the two sexes apart um, in a way that it, it, you know, when it creates species differences it does that by favoring different genes in the two species with sexes it can't do that so how does it do it um some mechanism to get the process started and then almost always um this involves producing gonadal hormones Mm. you know like testosterone or estrogen and that causes different patterns of gene expression of the same genes so the sexes have the same genes but they're expressed differently Mm. because of the 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 hormones that they produce and and the way the sort of trigger that starts off development in a male typical or female typical pattern just varies across species, whether it's genetic or environmental.
0: I see. So so the the differences in a sexually dimorphic species, I want to talk about what that means, Mm -hmm. is you know, you've got you've either got the small gamete or the big gamete, and then you're going to have a certain gonadal identity um, that is going to be tied to that. And that will lead to hormonal differences in development that are going to change the expression of the same set of genes that both individuals of each sex have in common,
1: yeah that's exactly right and of course there there are exceptions and they're well you know even in the same species some traits you know uh, um develop because of a different mechanism, but I'd say the, yeah, that's the general idea and so you know what you have in say humans is um uh, an undifferentiated gonad that then can go either way and that's determined by um, In humans and in other mammals by having an sry gene on the y chromosome
0: i see so if you have a y chromosome you have this particular gene that is going to switch this uh tissue to go down one developmental path and in this case become the testes um and if that's not there it goes down the other developmental path path by default and becomes the ovaries and so can we just explicitly define here for people that don't know what are gonads
1: oh yeah the testes are ovaries Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, I know um, when when I was a kid, I, I thought it was just uh, testes, but yeah, it's the general general term. Yeah, just like I, I believe phallus means clitoris or penis, but it's often used just for penis.
0: Oh, I see. There you go. Yeah. Little terminology. <laughs> and and does the analo- does is there an analogy here with the gametes? Are there are there two gonadal identities, or are there more than two? Can there be intermediate? monads?
1: Um, well let's see
0: here in primates I mean, at least
1: yeah primates um yeah i guess just too i mean there could be all like you know you just we just talked about how a, a gene on the y chromosome sets development one pathway or another but there there's all kinds of variation um, that can occur in um uh sorry are you still there yes yes go ahead okay all right. yeah your, your image went away from it um it went away again all right is that yeah no you're good continue okay um yeah the, the, anyway there's all kinds of variation that that can occur genetic variation or other things that can um cause the development of gonads to you know be, perhaps be intermediate but there's not sort of another um mode in the distribution like a, you know there's not a third gamete a third gonad type or um you know that produces a third type of gamete or something like that no but there's all kinds of variation and, like any trait you can imagine. So including like, um, you know, I, t- I mentioned the SRY gene, this gene on the, on the Y chromosome that causes the undifferentiated fetal gonads to become testes. If that gene happens to be translocated over onto an X chromosome, you could have a person with two Xs who develops a male, a male typical phenotype. Um, or if it's deleted from a Y, you could have a person that has X Y but has a female mm-hmm. typical um, pheno- so, traits, you know, phenotypic yeah. traits. So the yeah.
0: development of the testes in in humans is it's really about that S R Y gene, which happens to naturally be on the Y chromosome. But if you artificially move it, you can you can get male typical development even in the absence of a a a, a typical sex chromosome configuration.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, and you know that's sort of the genetic difference between males and females, that starts off a whole cascade of other differences. Um, But like I said, there are, you know, lots of things that could vary along the way. Um, Some people have a a typical Y chromosome with an SRY gene on it that causes their gonads to become testes. Those testes produce really high androgen levels, like, you know, normal male, if not higher than male typical levels, but they don't have, happen to have a functional receptor, for mm-hmm. testosterone, in other words, the way that sex hormones influence or gonadal hormones influences influence development and gene expression is that they circulate around the body in the bloodstream. So that it's a way of sort of integrating a whole bunch of developmental processes together. You know, producing hormones because they go everywhere in the body, and then any tissue in the body that has receptors for those hormones—it's a you know uh, like a, a protein that it would it bind onto—then that hormone receptor complex. Goes into the nucleus of a cell and it influences gene expression, upregulates or downregulates various genes. But some people have a non-functional androgen receptor. That means they could produce all the testosterone and other androgens, other you know male hormones. Hormones produced more, more by males than females. They could produce all that they want, but it, the message is never received. So the hormone doesn't affect gene expression. So it doesn't affect tissue development. And so there are people like that who have what's called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, where they have testes undescended in the abdominal cavity, um, a, a Y chromosome, an SRY gene, high androgen levels. Um, but they have a externally, you know, very female typical, uh, appearance and psycho- psychologically female typical and so on. And usually, you know, their condition wouldn't be detected until, um, they, they don't have ovaries, so they don't menstruate. So they don't go through, uh, you know, female puberty. And then, um, then they, they would find out, they'd go to the doctor and find out, you know, what what their condition is. But so anyway, there are lots of different variations that can, that can occur that don't involve the SRY gene.
0: Yeah. So as development proceeds, the gonadal identity that you have is going to determine sort of uh, the, the ratios and the amounts of the various different hormones and things yeah. that are going to be circulating, depending on the pattern that one has, that's going to have a, a cascade of effects in terms of how different tissues and organs develop and that will ultimately lead to systematic differences between the, the sexes, the the individuals in the population with the small gamete versus the large gamete, and if there's differences between them that are measurable, is that's what we call sexual dimorphism.
1: Yeah, right. Um, some people, it, it's interesting, you know, people sort of vary in what they mean by that term. Um, I think most people mean um, just traits that exhibit um, a statistical sex difference. So it doesn't mean that the the distributions don't overlap, but just that there's, um, some, yeah, some statistical difference that's measurable. Um, so, you know, you can think of like height in humans, you know, there's, um, plenty of overlap. You know, we know lots of women taller than the average guy and guys shorter than the average female, but there's a, you know, a a sex difference that's easy to observe and you don't need a big group of people to to see that guys on average are taller than, that uh than females um some people have I think that's the typical definition but some people have have redefined the term recently I think that's fair to say redefined um the term to mean there is no overlap between the sexes um I you know I think what I don't really care too much I don't like to get bogged down on meanings you know <laughs> just like let's be clear about what we mean and define the terms and then just try to understand the phenomenon we're trying to understand um but I don't think that's an especially useful uh meaning of the word because uh for one thing how could you ever know that there's no overlap unless you've measured every individual in the population and isn't isn't it likely that there's always going to be some because there's tons of variation in nature and all kinds of environmental and genetic things that can cause um differences and so um it just seems not not a very useful concept versus just sort of saying is there a sex difference and if so how much how big is it how much overlap is there mm-hmm. some sex differences are bigger than others and sexual dimorphism you know I, I I would use the word to refer to that, but sometimes I just say sex differences or sexually differentiated traits or something like that um, to avoid any confusion.
0: Mm-hmm. And when we think about sex differences in in phenotypes, sexual dimorphism, dimorphism, <laughs> however we want to uh, talk about it, mm-hmm. um, the the overall level of this does clearly uh, vary between species. So if I think about a primate like a gorilla, it's a very high level of dimorphism, right? The males are much much bigger than the females and the same is true say in humans but to a lesser degree. Yeah, that's and right. what um what determines the the level of overall sexual dimorphism and how does that relate to things like population structure or mating strategies?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So uh, um I think in answering this question we have to talk about causality at an on an evolutionary time scale. So, you know, previously we've been talking about um uh you know, sex chromosomes, genes, Hormones and so on, and of course, that's those cause sex differences in gorilla anatomy in the same way that they do in humans. But if we're talking about what causes the species difference, in that you know, human males are about um, something like thirty-five or forty percent heavier in terms of fat-free mass, um, and gorillas are o- almost like two to one. You know, like hundred percent larger male gorillas than females. What causes that difference? Um, almost always i know of only one exception and it's a fish um when males evolve larger body size it's because they in that species there's an evolutionary history of males using their size against each other to win mates through what's called contest competition either um you know fighting or threatening one another with the potential to fight um and that you know males evolve larger size grasses same thing that's why the biggest female when well, you talked about blue-headed that's where the biggest female is the one that changes into male because she's the one most likely to be successful um at defending a territory from other males um but that said, i w- want to say this um the 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 world record for the most sexually dimorphic mammal is um elephant seals where mm-hmm. males are something like seven to ten times the size of females in mass uh, depends on whether we're talking about northern elephant seals like come up to california or southern which is like you know antarctica and chile um that's pales in comparison to the world record for mo- most female and most species females are bigger than males um it's surprising because we're more familiar with mammals and birds but if you look across insects where well, there are lots of insects and um and fish and so on females tend to be bigger than males and the reason is because of selection for fecundity they can produce more eggs bigger eggs and so on and the record for sexual dimorphism and body size is a a deep sea angler fish called a devil fish mm. females are five hundred thousand times the size of males <laughs> you wouldn't even recognize them and if a male is ever lucky he's basically a swimming pair of gonads and, and if he's ever lucky enough to find a female then he fuses to her loses his internal organs loses his eyes and just becomes a a, a, pair, a pair of gonads on her body um and so you know that that's an extreme but generally females are bigger because there's always selection on females to be larger for fecundity for producing more and b- bigger eggs and so on but in some species there's even stronger selection on males to be large because successful males can reproduce at the rate of multiple females if they can um you know uh, acquire defend whatever from other males uh, multiple females like happens in races and gorillas and so on
0: I see so so it has to do with the the nature of the male male competition for mate access
1: yep yeah, yeah both things yeah the, the nature of a male male competition whether it's um, whether males are competing by attracting females or by um, trying to locate females or by um, producing more sperm or more motile sperm because you know the female mates with multiple males at the same time. Or whether they're competing through contest competition through the use of force or threat of force against same-sex competitors to win mates so number one is that important to male was that important to male mating success ancestrally um and number two how important you know like Mm -hmm. what's the intensity of sexual selection how how big are the reproductive differences between males you know are there lots of males that leave zero offspring and then some males that you know reproduce with dozens of females and the the more intense sexual selection is um, the the bigger the sex difference ought to be as well
0: yeah so how does the overall um, the overall amount of sexual dimorphism uh, when we look at uh, cross primate species we look at gorillas mm-hmm. chimpanzees human beings wh- where do humans fall into the distribution are we relatively l- uh, low in sexual dimorphism high in sexual dimorphism somewhere in the middle
1: yeah um, I would say that we are rel- somewhere in the middle and that uh you know if you look across primates in general in primates there's a substantial degree of male mating competition so if you if you said well what's the average primate is sexual selection not very important when i think about all the various you know um uh say monkeys that live in multi-male, multi-female groups, and so on. I mean, the average primate has pretty intense male competition for mates. So saying that we're like the average primate suggests that there's pretty intense um, competition among our male ancestors for mating opportunities. But I will say that, um, you know, maybe especially anthropologists, but uh, but other social scientists as well sort of disagree about the magnitude of the sex difference in body size. And I think one of the reasons for that, it should be like an empirical question though where we've got data on millions of people so why can't we agree on this right um i think the reason is that um in non-human primates when when you look or other animals when you look at sex differences in say body mass normally what you look at is just um overall mass you know you what's the weight of a male what's the weight of a female or the mass of a male mass of a female um and if you look at that in humans then um you see that males are only maybe for 15 to 20 percent um heavier than females on average and that's like kind of in in the middle between a, a monogamous species um and something with a species like say chimps where males are pretty aggressively fight each other um for mates um however um other scientists studying this have said yeah but that's not it's kind of comparing apples and oranges because other primates don't have these huge sex differences in body composition like humans do mm. human females have 40 percent more more fat and you know we don't know exactly why um may have to do a sexual selection on females I kind of like that idea but also uh you know providing resources for uh, a big brain baby for a long time you know through gestation and, and lactation and, and
0: sort of getting
1: over the 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 troughs and resource Mm -hmm. availability you need to have it stored up on your body i see so
0: this is uh, this is interesting so yeah you know when we when we talk about sexual dimorphism, you know we can it's convenient maybe to sometimes think about it in overall and it's very easy to just look at the sort of most uh visually salient thing which is just how big or massive the males are versus the females but individual traits can go in either direction when you're comparing two different species so so you just said We are less sexually dimorphic than chimps and other apes in terms of mass. If you just measure how many grams everyone weighs, but at the same time, we're more dimorphic in terms of body fat composition, like fat versus muscle composition,
1: more, more dimorphic by far the most of, uh, you know, we don't have great data on body composition on a lot of primate species. And I I published a chapter with some uh, colleagues recently where we, you know, I went online and I found every primate that I could where where we there was information on male and female um fat free mass um fat mass and so on and I only was able to locate maybe a dozen species um but of those we are far and away the most uh sexually dimorphic in in fat mass and so if you take that and most primates are not highly sexually dimorphic in, in body fat and so if you Look at the mass that would be most relevant to our male ancestors competing for mate, which is mates, which is really muscle mass, but let's just say we don't have that, but we do have fat free mass or lean body mass um then you look at that, then males are then humans are more sexually dimorphic than chimps um oh, I guess I actually could only find data on the uh, bonobos, sometimes called pygmy chimps, um mm-hmm. but they're probably about the same as as common chimps. So a little bit more sexually dimorphic, but anyway, well outside the range of um, a monogamous species and in, in with a species where males have um, you know, established dominance hierarchies and um, pretty intense mating competition. Um,
0: I so, see. So, yeah. so if you look at overall mass, we are not as dimorphic as species that have pretty intense male-male direct yeah, competition. On the, on but if you look it. at fat-free mass, like muscle mass, essentially, we are that dimorphic.
1: We are and still considerably less dimorphic than, say, gorillas and, uh, you know, orangutans, um, but hamadryas baboons. Um, But yeah, more, more, slightly more than chimps. And um, that also accords with our skeletal. Uh, You know, if you sort of estimated how much bigger males would be than females for a normal primate based on our skeletons, then we look like a species where males are something like 45 percent bigger than females as well so
0: what are some other human traits where we are uh, especially sexually dimorphic
1: good question well um you're illustrating one with the the beard there um, so it you know that's a kind of a I think we kind of can take some of these traits for granted sometimes like what is what is up with our growing hair um, from our faces all the time and um, uh, and so that's one um, and voice you know my my lab has used, the large sex differences in voice pitch. So there's, you know, there's not. I just give you one example. When I was a postdoc at, at, in neuroscience at Michigan State, I did a big sort of psychology study, um, and recruited over 600 people, and the average speaking fundamental frequency, like the average speaking voice pitch, um, for um, every male was higher than every female. Oh, sorry, lower than every female. Um, so there, in other words, there's no overlap and voice pitch between uh, males and females and over 600 uh, young adults um, so that's a really big sex difference that emerges at sexual maturity you know um pre-pubertal boys and girls don't differ in, in voice pitch it just happens that uh, when you know the testes start producing lots of testosterone then all their various target tissues are affected and that includes the vocal folds it makes the vocal folds grow much longer and thicker uh you know males are about seven to eight percent taller than females and humans and so you'd expect vocal folds in males if it just scales with body size that males vocal folds should be like seven or eight percent longer but they're like 60 percent longer almost you know 10 times Mm. as as big of a sex difference as you'd predict based on the difference in body size um and so as a consequence of some of some of these facts and that you know traits that are favored by sexual selection like say deers antlers and um peacock's tail feathers they tend to emerge at sexual maturity when they can start paying for their costs by helping win mating opportunities. And so I thought about voices, you know, it seems like a trait that could well be related to male mating success and favored by sexual selection. And so that we've used that. It's also eminently quantifiable, you know, you you can Mm -hmm. just record people's voices and, you know, voice pitch is just like one, one number. It's, you know, what's the rate of, um, vibrations per second opening openings and closings of the vocal folds per second or hertz Um, and so it's been a really useful model trait for us to study uh, sexual selection in humans and that's highly sexually dimorphic you know muscle mass as we talked about there are lots of behavioral sex differences as well um, and psychological ones sexual orientation you know there's very little there's overlap but um, by far most males are attracted to females and vice versa. You know, that's one of the most sort of psychologically uh, largest sex differences in
0: humans. Yeah. I see. And then, so in terms of speech is interesting uh, or vocalization is interesting for a number mm-hmm. of reasons because we have speech, we, we can talk and use language in ways that other primates can't, but there's all these non-linguistic elements like like pitch and, and just sort of the the pattern of, of auditory stimulus that you're emitting. What you know what are how do non linguistic elements of speech in the human voice like pitch? H- how do they uh, play into how individuals perceive the opposite sex? So, what are the specific features of of the male voice that females tend to evaluate when they're doing mate selection, uh, and vice versa?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the The work that we've done is mostly focused on the sexually differentiated or sexually dimorphic parts of the voice. So voice pitch and also timber um, which has to do with the resonant frequencies of the vocal tract so you can think of um you know sort of voice production as being well we st- start to produce the sound by pushing air from our lungs past the vocal folds they're sometimes called the vocal cords in the larynx and that causes them to vibrate and that's the source of the sound vibrating vocal folds and so longer thicker uh, vocal folds vibrate more slowly. And if you've ever looked in a piano, you know, the longer, thicker strings are the ones with low, that are associated with lower notes, right? And so that's the source of the sound. And then the vocal tract above that um, determines what are called formant frequencies of the resonant frequencies. And males also have a vocal tract that's, um, uh, you know, about 15% longer than females. So again, about twice as big of a difference as you'd predict based on the difference in body size. Um, and so that makes a voice sound sort of richer and fuller. And um, and that affects how people perceive the sort of uh, dominant status, uh, threat potential. I think that, you know, those sex differences probably evolved, you know, tens of millions of years ago in, in primates as a way of uh, intimidating other males, that males uh, sort of exaggerate their size um, acoustically by producing low-pitched and low-timber Uh, vocalizations, and and we've done some cross-species research in primates to uh, suggest that. um, Females prefer um, lower pitch, um, but not too low, and they don't care as much. It doesn't affect female preferences as much as it does uh, males' impressions of the sort of threat potential or status of another male. Um, And then in experiments, um, males prefer higher pitched and higher timber female voices. Although timber, that's when you manipulate things, but I'm a little worried about studies like that sometimes because I think, uh, when you've manipulated an acoustic parameter and nothing else has changed, then listeners kind of just focus on that. And then you can get an effect that's actually much bigger than it would be in nature when all these other things vary among, you know, across voices, because when we've looked at, um, a large sample of female voices that weren't manipulated at all. And we just had males rate them on how attractive they are. Um, And then we said, how important is, how much does pitch or, you know, influence ratings of attractiveness? It was, didn't, it didn't matter. Um, Statistically, Timber did. Guys preferred a sort of smaller sounding or shorter sounding Vocal tract, but pitch actually had no
0: no effect. So you said you said there are there are things like female preferences for lower pitches but up to a point. Yeah. Yeah. But you said it sounded like you said there was a bigger effect in terms of how males perceive other males based yeah. on the how low their voice is, basically. Yeah. To what extent is that vocalization, like how low your voice is, the pitch of your voice, a reliable indicator of something like how threatening you are or how dangerous you are or where you fall in a social status hierarchy. Another way of asking that question would be if males, you know, whether we're talking about humans or other primates, if a male moves positions in a status hierarchy, will his voice reliably change in one direction?
1: Ooh, that's great. Yeah. So there are two, two answers um, to your initial question, um, which was, you know, sort of how uh, accurate, are assessments made from these acoustic parameters, mm-hmm. and then the other one is: Does voice change as a function of status? Um, let's see. I'll, I'll ask the. I'll answer the second one first because it's maybe a little bit quicker. Um, there is some evidence that that does happen across contexts, and the, the same individual, um, say, uh, with some colleagues of mine, um, I I, pub- I was a I know, middle author on this. Uh, published a paper a few years ago, showing that people tended to lower their pitch when they were sort of an authority and, you know, they were knowledgeable about something. um, And when they weren't, it was, it was a higher, higher pitch. And I I think that uh, that does happen across social contexts that people raise their pitch um, when they are, when they feel in, in control or in authority and they Uh, Sorry, lower it when they feel in in control or in authority. And they raise it to sort of signal deference. And I don't think that's probably almost never a conscious thing. I think that Mm -hmm. when you're nervous, that um, produces tension on the vocal folds. And that's something that was adaptive in our ancestors, that it doesn't make sense to, you know, it can be costly to signal dominance in a situation where you're not dominant. You know, better to signal deference. And, of course, we can sort of volitionally learn to control those things. Um, But then there's... Another sort of question in there about between individual differences. I think maybe were you also asking about that? That like say, are males with lower pitch? Are they do they have characteristics that would make them more dominant or something? Or were you asking about that? I don't. Know.
0: Yeah, I think that's related to the question of you know if you if you hear yeah. a guy with a really low voice. Is right. that actually statistically going to be related to the probability that he's, you know, relatively high in a status hierarchy? Yeah, yeah. Um, that That's
1: something that we and others have been working on quite a bit lately, because we recognize it's an important question. Like, why would you defer to a male with a deep voice or a low pitch voice um, and give up all and have all these costs of deferring? Like, uh, because, you know, the other studies have shown like males with low pitch have more mating opportunities. Um, some studies find more offspring, more resources, you know, like h- higher incomes and so on. Like, why would you give up all those things to male in, in deference to males with deep voices unless there's actually some, you know, kernel of truth in, in a low deep voice? Um, and the answer is that probably the biggest thing that a deep voice signals is sexual maturity in males, that it's you've gone from pre-pubertal to going through puberty. And so in that sense, it's strongly associated with physical formidability, because there's a huge difference between an adult male and everybody else in terms of, you know, size, strength, aggression, and so on. Um, and so in, in that regard, if you sort of look across all humans, then um, a low voice pitch is a very good indicator of the threat potential of that individual but then if you look among adult males the relationships are weaker there is an association with body size taller males have lower pitched voices but it's not a strong association um there are associations with uh very weak one with strength um with testosterone is a bit stronger that lower testosterone is associated with uh higher voice and vice versa um but uh but this relationships are, are are certainly weaker uh at least in the studies that have been done um, i don't know how you know you can imagine that in, a, in the evolution yeah sorry were you gonna f- follow no no go ahead okay well i'm just thinking most of the studies that have looked at this though are in um societies with good access to resources and healthcare and so on and if voice pitch in adult males is associated with things like testosterone and you know higher testosterone, lower pitch, or cortisol, which is a stress hormone. You can imagine that in our ancestors and populations where um, healthcare, you know, what, like modern healthcare wasn't available, people were much more at the mercy of their own immune systems and staying healthy. Um, resources were less reliable. That there might have been sort of bigger differences in some of these sort of health related characteristics that would affect hormone levels that would affect pitch. So it's possible that ancestrally there was a bit stronger relationship between pitch and somebody's sort of overall health vigor and formidability than you would see in a, in say the modern us where everybody's, you know, relatively high in health.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the things that we've mentioned or that's been implicit in some of the stuff we've been discussing is how sort of mate access and mate choice relates to, um, individual's perceived position in a social status hierarchy or dominance hierarchy so so what exactly are social status hierarchies in social primates and what are some of the main factors that determine their structure and you know I think it could be helpful to talk about maybe species differences here
1: yeah I yeah I think that those are really relevant because um, in your typical mammal um, then you know position in a dominance hierarchy, Pretty much just has to do with a couple of things one, your history of success in, in fighting other same sex competitors and possibly and often your ability to oppose and to pose an apparent threat uh so you know there's species like say red deer where both males would prefer not to fight because that's costly um, and so they roar at each other they you know go side to side and they um, show how big they are and they roar and then that often results in one saying okay you've got a lot more energy than I do uh I I defer um and and there's no fight that that happens but so in other mammals that's it's sort of fighting or threat and then in social primates there's that but then if you look at say our closest living relatives uh chimpanzees they're also coalitions and so Mm. um you know you can be successful against a a more physically formidable bigger stronger male um, if you have allies and I, so I think that something like that has probably characterized, uh, it's hard to say, but uh, probably all of all of hominin evolution for the past um, 7 million years. But, you know, the fossil record is sort of unclear. One, one indicator would be how sexually dimorphic were our ancestors and body size. Um, but in humans, anyway, for sure there's that. You know, the, human males are not like elephant seals that, you know, they're unabatedly at one another's throats during the... Uh, mating season, you know, it, there's low frequency, and compared to chimps, there's much lower frequencies of male fighting in, in humans than in chimpanzees. There's a lot more um, sort of uh, deference according to um, information that you have about the other individual, there's coalition forming, and um, and then there's also a, sort of another avenue to social status called prestige, it's freely conferred deference, that you know, it's not based on fighting ability. It's not based on the the other male's ability to hurt you physically, but rather um, things that they can offer, like leadership and and knowledge and skills and that sort of thing. That we value those in our societies too, and so um, we afford status and and give deference to some individuals uh, based on prestige that that doesn't have. Uh, necessarily anything to do with their their fighting ability or the threat potential
0: yeah so so what would be the common denominator of status you know if you're going to integrate this across elephant seals gorillas chimps and humans so obviously elephant seals they, they don't care if you've got uh, they don't give each other degrees from prestige institutions it's all about size and, and and fighting physical fighting ability human beings you know we've got all of these other markers of status and prestige but across species what is the what is the high status exchanged for what's the the ultimate thing here
1: uh resources relevant to reproduction and so that could be mates um, in species where members of one sex compete for mates but in most primate species um females for example might have status hierarchies they might have dominance hierarchies But their reproductive success is not limited by access to males. One male, they can't, a female that has 10 males cannot reproduce at a higher rate than a female with one male. Um, So they're not competing so much for mates, but they are competing for resources for themselves and their offspring. Females are using their bodies to turn resources into offspring. And so, um, you know, that's what females primates are competing over. Um, But that's it. It's, you know, uh, access to reproductively relevant resources, whatever those happen to be.
0: I see, and so I, I think you you just touched on two important difference between males and females the the small gamete sex or morph and the big gamete sex or morph. You know, if a, a female, so you said a female with access to one male can't, but with ten uh, access to ten males can't reproduce ten times faster than uh, than a female that just has access to one because she's sort of the rate she's the rate limiting step in terms of reproductive output. So it would make sense they're not competing for uh the number of males but they would be competing for the quality of the male in terms of the reproductively relevant resources he could provide.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If if what males are providing is something that um there is competition over, that means that the use of that characteristic by one female makes it at least partially unavailable to others. So if it's sperm, you know that like some males are higher in genetic quality than others. Then females might not be competing very much for those males because that male can inseminate all the females in the group, and there's not a an issue with you know mating. The one female mating with this male makes that male sperm unavailable to others. But if males are doing something like providing parental care or resources or something like that, mm. um, and males differ in their ability and willingness to provide those things, then females could compete over uh, over those yeah over ma- over mates and I will say also that it's not always um I just want to sort of make this little tweak um because I think it's interesting it's not always the sex with the uh smaller gamete competing for mates um mm. because in some species like say uh spotted sandpipers um uh, females reproductive success is more dependent upon their access to mates than males and the reason why is because the female lays her the, the male makes the nest the mm. female lays her eggs in the male's nest the male incubates the eggs and cares for the offspring and the female then can go off and mate with another male and so in spotted sandpipers females you know a female with three mates leaves about three times as many offspring per season as a female with one mate um, and so in, in spotted sandpipers Females are limited by their access to mates, and as a consequence, they're bigger than males and more competitive and for mates and more aggressive than males. So there are some species like that where the, spe- the sex producing the bigger gametes, females, um, is actually their reproductive success is more strongly tied to mates than, than, than males. But mostly, it's the other way around. Hmm.
0: Yes. And how does how do things like um, so we can think across species here, but you could also just think across. Present-day and historical human cultures, you have different uh, um, mating systems or or mating um, cultures that mm-hmm. emerge and stabilize. You know, sometimes some cultures are largely monogamous; sometimes they're large, largely polygynous. Um, so, what does that have to do with this? Why, why do different Mating—I don't know what you call that—mating yeah. systems or mating architectures. Why do they emerge, and what does that have to do with things like mate availability and and population structure?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I don't think anybody really agrees on why um, these different. Mar- I guess you'd really probably call them like uh, you mating uh, marriage systems or something, because you know that's a pretty much a human universal that. Um, humans engage in long-term uh, relationships that are sexual slash romantic and, and involve sort of, they're socially agreed upon, and they pretty much involve uh, people agreeing that these people are allowed to have sex with each other, but other people are not um, if they're not in the marriage. Um, and so though whatever, that's sort of marriage in a nutshell, I suppose. Um, and that those things differ. Like some societies have most... Societies described by anthropologists allow polygynous marriage um, because most societies are, you know, small-scale societies that we're not maybe and, familiar with.
0: And yeah. just to uh, yeah. define that for people, so polygyny sure. would be one male uh, with multiple wives.
1: One male with multiple wives, and which means that um, given a sex ratio of about the same number of males as females, that that means um, adult males are also more likely to be unmarried. Um, mm-hmm. There are other males out there with no no mates at all um and you know the levels of polygynous marriage across societies are, are low you know that uh, mo- even in a, polygy- a society with polygynous marriage most marriages are monogamous other societies allow only monogamous marriage um a small number of societies also have polyandrous marriage one female m- married to multiple guys they're often brothers usually brothers um and so there are two issues here one how those different marriage patterns develop and um That's not clear. Um, You know, probably things like religion have have a lot to do with it. Um, Another one is how does that affect the intensity of mating competition? And the answer to that one is probably not a whole lot. And and the reason is that even in monogamous societies, societies that only allow monogamous marriage, the mating system is um, sort of effectively um, polygynous because males are more likely to divorce and remarry when they remarry it's usually a younger spouse than their previous one and they're more likely then to have to reproduce again with a second spouse and so it's really just sort of like polygyny but uh expanded over time rather than you know uh a single time yeah. i guess yeah uh, so in terms get- in
0: terms of it never occurred to me in terms of sort of reproductive output or or uh structure here serial monogamy is more like, like polygyny. polygyny. Yeah, yeah that's right de facto or something yeah and so um in the studies that have looked
1: at say uh typically when you have polygyny then you have bigger variation in male reproductive success because some males are leaving lots of offspring and other males are leaving no offspring mm-hmm. and so there's more variation among males in their reproductive output and when you compare That those variances across monogamous and polygynous societies, there really is not any systematic difference. You get big differences in, uh, you know, males having uh, big variation in in reproductive success in monogamous societies as well. So, yeah,
0: Hmm. Yeah. interesting. Um, And so, what about like species differences here? So, so humans sort of have this extra layer of of culture and you know, formal taboos on, on things like, like marriages and, um, you know, how people relate to each other sexually. Um, but even in non-human primates, um, you have species that, uh, are more or less likely to form long-term pair bonds. And so in non non-human mammals, why does something like uh, pair bonding in the long-term evolve? What kind of, um, population structures or yeah. whatever influence that um there are this is getting slightly
1: outside my expertise but i, I i'm gonna um offer some some informed uh you know, speculation so there are some species like say gibbons and siamangs where monogamy um seems to be about defending a mate from competitors and in and those species both males and females uh, defend their mate and so both sexes call like uh call they sing um and they sometimes do duets and both sexes seem to be sort of advertising to their same-sex competitors I'm here so you can stay away and that de- that defends a mate. so that results in monogamous mating because they're each individually scaring away the you know other members of their sex um in some South American monkeys that have either monogamous or even polyandrous mating, um, females are able to, Yeah, you know, most primates, fe- females give birth to singletons. They don't, we're not like, you know, pigs where you can have, you know, whatever, I don't know how many offspring they have in a typical litter, eight, 10, 12, something, a lot. Um, we don't have litters, we have one. Uh, but in some South American um, monkeys, females give birth to twins. And that requires a lot of parental care. And so, you know, a a male can do well by tying himself to a single female and helping care for the offspring because she can produce a lot of offspring. Um, And so, you know, for males, it's like, well, should I, um, you know, not invest in this mate and her offspring and re-enter the mating pool and try to find another mate? Or should I stick here and put my reproductive effort into caring for this mate and, and their offspring? Well, a female, and when a female can produce kind of a lot of offspring, um, then maybe sticking around is a better strategy, and so um, yeah, I think that that's probably the the two sorts of um, types of monogamy that evolve in primates. But um, yeah, anyway,
0: I, I would defer to any one of my primatologist colleagues on that one. I see, but but the level of parental care required, and and how that's related to yeah. things like the the litter size, um, the number of offspring they're had at one time, that would that does seem like it's a factor.
1: Yeah, it does. And also sort of the degree to which males can do something, you know, Mm. and so in birds, 90% of, of birds are, have, at least passerine birds, have social monogamy, where both sexes make the nest together, both sexes incubate the eggs, and when the eggs hatch, both sexes go off and get, you know, invertebrates and feed them to the nestlings. But those are species where both sexes can do those activities, you know, that it's not like one sex would be better than the other. And so a male can increase his own reproductive success by increasing his mate's reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, you know, mammals, that's much harder because, you know, in, in most mammals are, uh, you know, have internal gestation, right? And that's something that males can't do. Mm-hmm. And then um, all mammals br- uh, produce milk. And that's something that males can't do, and so mm-hmm. everything is sort of biased against males being able to invest in offspring um, in mammals. But there's some cases where you just need a parent to care for, you know, to carry the offspring around, or something like in, you know, marmosets and tamarinds or in humans. And I think you know, the not enough has been written about this, but certainly it's been discussed before that um, there was a point in hominin evolution in, at which human males could invest and could really carry a big share of the load, um, compared to other primates. And that is with hunting, which evolved somewhere around sort of one and a half to 2 million years ago in, in, Homo erectus, probably that we went from a typical great ape that ate a lot of plants and, um, some meat to, to being a primate that ate a ton of meat. And now all of a sudden you can get big packets of calories, protein, fats. And that's something that a male could go off and, and acquire and provide to his mate and offspring and increase her reproductive success and and the survival of his offspring as a result. And I think that was a major turning point in human evolution where, um, you know, it probably not only decreased male competition for mates, but greatly increased male investment in, in mates and offspring. Hmm. And it had other ramifying consequences that I'm happy to talk about, too, like concealed ovulation, I, I suspect, was uh bev strassman i came up with this idea one time i thought this is brilliant i'm gonna write a paper on it and then i did a little more reading and realized that beverly strassman had published it 30 years earlier Mm. um and for some reason the idea just wasn't um you know favored at the time but this idea that um females suppressed cues to ovulation and and uh the human lineage as a way of um obtaining male investment um enabling some males to invest in them
0: um, yeah no, let's talk about that cuz I did want to bring that up. Um yeah. cuz one one of the ways that we differ from a lot of primates, I I believe that we I believe most primates, right? Like chimpanzees and lots yeah. of other species, yeah. when the females ovulate, not only do they basically they are only interested in sex when they're ovulating. So they're really not receptive much at all outside of that window of their cycle. And two, uh, many of them, I think uh, literally, like visually, display that they're ovulating. So there's this very, very clear sign that the males can literally see that. Okay, this female is ovulating, and therefore it's it's going to be worth my time to try and get her attention now. But humans don't do that. So can you unpack that for us? What is concealed ovulation, and why why would that even be a thing?
1: Yeah. Um. So in group living primates, females often advertise estrus. That is the the fertile time around. Um, ovulation with genital swellings. And um, I wish I had some pictures to show you right now. I mean, I do, I could like pull them up or something, but I'll just, you know, wax poetic here. But um, the, yeah, the genitals swell up to, um, you know, amazing conspicuous proportions. And that happens in chimps. It happens in lots of um, group living monkeys. Um, And it's a signal Um, You're right. Females are more sexually interested. They're more receptive and they solicit copulations around ovulation. And they also produce these signals that then males can tell roughly the time. I mean, the the genital swellings are usually start before uh, the fertile point of the cycle and continue afterward. But at least it's a window where males can tell that this is around when the female is ovulating. Um, And in some species, this varies across species. And so like in gorillas, uh, so in chimps, females have big genital swellings. In gorillas, not really. But apparently, um, you can tell, even a human, you know, can can tell when a female is near ovulation in gorillas, because there are some changes in coloration and appearance and that sort of thing. But in humans, it's really like we suppressed cues to ovulation. It's not just that there wasn't strong selection to produce this big advertisement. It's like, there was selection to cover up any possible cue and i think the reason why that happened in humans um, when you look at chimps and you see uh which males mate with fertile females when females are in estrus and they they have these big genital mm-hmm. swellings the alpha male that is the most dominant male in the group monopolizes copulations the whole fertile part of the cycle and even the day before and the day after um okay so for females that's okay because males are not providing anything other than sperm and so if that you let the males duke it out the most successful the most vigorous males the males with the highest genetic quality are, are going to be tend to be the ones that achieve the highest status and so sure mate with that male and your offspring will have those genes and be healthier but you know once you know in humans males could provide and did provide more than just dna to offspring but say could provide resources through hunting and childcare potentially and other things then females have an interest in not allowing that alpha male to bully his way in when they're fertile if you if you if you have a male who would be say a subordinate male who would be willing to invest in you and your offspring you have to facilitate that by not allowing the dominant male to fertilize you when you're fertile because then why would the subordinate male invest it's not his offspring anymore mm. and so you know and this is that strassman's idea but that the idea is that concealing ovulation from everybody makes it possible for a long-term mate to invest in his own offspring and that means that those males could profitably go out and collect resources and provide them to, to the mate and offspring and be relatively assured that the offspring were going to be the male's own offspring rather than some dominant male So anyway, that's, that's the idea. And it makes a whole lot of sense to me. So I would think that, you know, sometime after the evolution of our own genus Homo, um, you know, probably in Homo erectus that ovulatory cues started becoming suppressed, Mm -hmm. you know, a million and a half or 2 million years ago, something like that.
0: Yeah. And so I I would imagine that that is plausibly related to um, a number of things in our lineage. You know, one would be, you know, what you said around hunting. So as soon as we developed the cognitive and, uh, the cognitive capacity and the dexterity and so forth to do things like make hunting tools and go out and, and kill animals reliably. You know, we now had a much larger, a much more reliable high density calorie store Mm. that an individual who's good at that could build up. And so, you know, you could provide that to uh, a female and her offspring. Um, but also, you know, as, you know, as our lineage evolved in certain ways, such as, um, um, you know, just becoming smarter and having a longer lifespan and having a longer childhood that required a lot of input. It probably became at some point impossible to do that, or very, very difficult to do that, with only one parent doing the lion's share of uh, the child care early in life. And so, as our lineage went down that way, it makes sense to me that you you need to have uh, two parents investing. Um, a significant degree, and that seems like it would match up with the idea that you 'd want to conceal ovulation so that you're not you 're not merely advertising fertility to the most aggressive and plausibly uh, the most aggressive male who may or may not be willing to invest anything other than sperm
1: yeah um, I think you're right, and you know, but there 's quite a bit of variability in the extent to which males invest in their mates and kids across societies as well. So it's really hard mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, I I'm I just relayed this story about what our ancestors were like and what um, you know, mating structure and, you know, a single male and a female um, investing in their offspring together. And it's hard not to think that that was an important part of our evolution, but you also see a ton of variability across societies in sort of males involvement hmm. in their offspring, you know, um, and so there's a lot of research on what's called aloe mothering that, you know, other females sort of help each other in the group, um, care for babies and, you know, I'll hold your baby while you
0: need some time to do something else. And, um, so I, is that, you know, is that yeah. is a level of, uh, 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 male parental investment. Does that correlate at all or map to any degree to, um, things like, um, The climate, as it relates to, say, Mm -hmm. food availability. So, for example, I could imagine that if you're living in a climate where um, you can you can grow stuff very easily year round, it's very easy to take care of a child compared to, say, uh, someone living in a climate where you have to go out and you know into the tundra and hike for miles and hunt an animal, Um, and that's that's going to make it very very difficult to get enough food for to raise a child or something like that
1: yeah i'm sure it's related to not just to sort of the importance of having another parent caring for the offspring um and the extent to which um yeah the extent to which males can actually contribute in meaningful ways to the offspring's survival and reproduction and for the females you know reproductive success um and on the other hand males ability to increase their reproductive success by having more mates. You know, so if they're if you're in a society where um a male can have a lot more offspring by uh you know ma- marrying polygynously, um, then you know that's gonna tend to happen more often, and males will consequently uh tend to invest less in each female and her offspring. And so both of those things play a role, no, no doubt.
0: So um in our lineage in humans uh, there are, are not, there are very few visible signs of where a woman is at in her uh, ovulatory cycle. Yeah. Um, it's not nearly as conspicuous as other primates. Are there zero signs or are there some yeah. physiological indicators that are reliable?
1: Yeah. Uh, there are physiological, unreliable, let's say physi- physiological indicators. Um, as far as we know. And so, um, First, there's no debate that there are huge changes in ovarian hormones over the cycle you know that like um it the after menstruation at the beginning of the cycle the follicular phase of the cycle uh everything all, all you know estrogens and progest- progestogens like progesterone are low and then as ovulation nears estrogen goes way up and then ovulation happens and estrogen goes way down and progesterone goes way up into in the luteal phase of the cycle. And then in the middle of that, estrogens go up. Anyway, big changes over the cycle in hormones. And, of, you know, it's not surprising that those should influence aspects of the body that might be observable. And so we've we obse- you know, we've seen this in, you know, carefully designed studies with a good size sample looking at, looking at the same women at different times of the cycle. We have found that um voices were more attractive um when estrogen was higher relative to progesterone suggesting the fertile part of the cycle faces were also more attractive at that time um and we're interested in looking we haven't found like what acoustic parameters are causing these changes and um i'm not sure about what changes in the face either i mean some things that change over the cycle are things like skin redness acne oiliness and things like that, that might, that might play a role that other people have found. Um, but yeah, there do seem, and maybe some behavioral changes as well. Um, so there do seem to be some changes, but you know, there's current debate about, I, I, they don't look like signals to me. It looks like leakage of information as, uh, Mm -hmm. Steve Gangstead and Randy Thornhill wrote in a 2008 paper that it's, you know, sort of, there are changes over the cycle and hormones necessarily that involve, you know, ovulation and um, growing the endometrium of the uterus and things like that. And those big hormonal changes have some effects that are are visible.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's no, there's no no drive to make these things conspicuous. It
1: it seems like not. I mean, when you compare, and it's always useful to have this sort of cross species perspective, because, you know, I feel like some social scientists don't have a, much of a broad knowledge about other species and so they might conduct studies like this and say look see there are changes that's a signal um but if you compare us to non-human primates it just looks like these are very subtle cues that very are subtle. probably yeah that probably reflect um a suppression of of cues rather than you know signals i see could be wrong but that's what it looks like
0: and does um human female sexual interest generally or interest in particular traits in males change across the, uh, the ovulatory ovulatory cycle
1: for sexual interest. Yes. And, um, for especially, um, interest in uncommitted sex. Um, now two studies have shown one from our lab and one from another lab have shown that that peaks around, um, mid cycle around ovulation, Um, They're not huge differences, Um, you know, again, like it's not something that you just easily notice looking around. It's not like a female chimp who all of a sudden she's really interested and, you know, uh, receptive and soliciting copulations and stuff. It's a subtle change, but detectable. Um, It's hard to imagine that these changes in sexual interest don't also lead to or correlate with changes in the kinds of characteristics that females are interested in. If you're more sexually interested the, at mid-cycle then wouldn't you be more interested in traits that are sexually attractive versus other traits outside of that fertile window but i will say that the literature on that on sort of mate preferences changing over the cycle is quite murky at this point and a lot of the you know if you asked me 10 years ago i would have said and i did say um you know in public talks you know this the, you know m- women's preferences change over the cycle so that they prefer more masculine males um at, you know, near ovulation, because at the time, the literature really, including stuff from, from, you know, our own lab and stuff that I published as a grad student, part of my dissertation, really, you know, suggested that it was many convergent lines of evidence. But since then, better design, bigger studies, including ones that we've done and and collaborated with other labs, uh, are not seeing those changes. So now I kind of, you know, throw my hands up a bit and say, well, um, it's, there are some studies that suggest that um, it's easy to imagine that there could be those changes, but the evidence isn't great.
0: Yeah. Um, so Okay. So there's not a lot of clear cut stuff here.
1: Yep. Not on, not on mate preferences, but I think the data are, are substantially better on sort of sexual interest changing over the cycle. Um, and again, though, they're not huge changes. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, sort of implicit in most of our discussion um, is, is that we're talking about heterosexual uh mating mm-hmm. um but obviously uh, especially in humans um, you have a variety of sexual orientation so you've males that prefer females obviously, but you also have males that prefer males um and and same same thing on the female side so where does sexual orientation even come from w- what determines it is, is a lot of this stuff determined? genetically, uh, prenatally, perinatally, very early in development? And and what are the factors at play here? What do we know about the the biological basis for sexual orientation in humans?
1: Uh, That's a great question. Um, So uh, first, I'd want to sort of define what we're talking about by sexual orientation, because you you could mean people's identity. Do you say you're straight or gay, lesbian, bi, whatever? Um, Or are you talking about behavior? Um, And what I think Probably most people studying sexual orientation usually mean at least what I'm going to refer to is attractions fantasies that sort of thing who do you want to have sex with um so you know you, are, do you want to have sex only with males only with females both more equally uh, so in terms of that are you more androphilic uh, attracted to males or gynophilic attracted to females um mo- almost all of the human variation in that probably comes from early, Going at all hormones and uh, mainly testosterone that there's just too many converging lines of evidence my, my co-authors and i just published a review paper you know uh, like a month or two ago on this and we just looked at sort of all the different lines of evidence from various endocrine conditions and so on biomarkers of early hormone exposure and it it just seems strongly that the reason why the average male is attracted to females and the average female is attracted to males is because of early testosterone exposure that that organizes that regulates patterns of gene expression in the developing brain um, to make a brain that is more attracted to one sex versus the other. Um, That's the sex difference. But then there's within sex variation, like, yeah, but what are the causes of the differences between gay and straight males or between, uh, you know, straight women and lesbians? And the evidence there is a lot murkier. I don't think that overall differences in sex hormone action, gonadal hormone action, account for much of the variation among males in sexual orientation. Um, There are other factors potentially that we can talk about. And for females, I also think that not a lot of the variation among them is due to differences in gonadal hormones, um, but but more, it's the evidence is a little bit better within females that that you know sort of uh, exposure to elevated androgen action, like testosterone action, um, early in development, prenatally, let's say, um, that that results in more um, gynophilia, more attraction to females. The evidence is a little bit better in females, but um, yeah, that, I think that's most of the variation is sex variation, whether you're a male or female, and that determines, you, you know, that's strongly related to whether you're attracted to males or females. And that difference is driven by androgens, probably, mostly, maybe estrogens, could talk about that too. But then the within-sex variation has less to do with um, with hormones.
0: Okay, uh, what well, do we know what it has to do with?
1: Well, um, which, which sex do you want me to start with? Let's start. Uh, let's females. How about um, there? There are various sort of biomarker studies uh, that say looking at um, anatomical characteristics um, that suggest that lesbians, on average, had higher androgen action um, prenatally. Um, so that suggests that some of the variation within females is due to, um, you know, early sex hormone exposure. Um, for males, maybe there's some research that's been published recently that suggests that it's not helpful to treat all say gay males as monolithic, um, that there are different you know say you could separate them on the the role that they like to play in in sex whether they're more of a play a receptive role or bottom or um or uh, uh penetrating role or top and that there are differences among them and that you could actually explain some of the differences by early sex hormone exposure and so that past attempts to look have uh have been looking at it wrong because they were treating you know all males that were say attracted to males as a as the same group um, but there's other evidence that some of the variation has to do with like, uh, a maternal immune system response to, um, to male, male proteins. <laughs> when moms, uh, carry a son, there are proteins that are produced because males and females have some different DNA. Males have a Y chromosome. There's some genes on the Y chromosome that produce proteins that the mom's body if she's exposed to them would she would they would her body would recognize that as a foreign protein and her immune system would mount a response to it say that's not mine um i'm going to produce antibodies to it so that i can mount an immune the typical immune response that all of our bodies have to foreign proteins <laughs> and that if moms carry more sons then they'll be exposed more often or, or to higher levels of male proteins and they could have an immune response that could then affect the neural development of subsequent sons and there's some evidence that that's the case that hmm. moms who have who have given birth to more sons um are more likely to have later born sons are more likely to be gay hmm. um, and even some evidence that um moms who have who have gay sons and have had more previous males that they have uh higher levels of a of a protein that's made on the on the y chromosome so that you know that that explains some of the variation maybe about a quarter of the variation um in male sexual
0: orientation quarter. Yeah. I mean, so that would be fairly substantial amount of variation explained.
1: Yeah, actually it would be a substantial, I guess, I think I misspoke because it's a quarter of the cases of gay males. Um, Is that, I guess that's not quite the same thing anyway. um, So if you, if you think like, what are the predictors of a male being uh, attracted to females or male of the males attracted to other males about, maybe a fifth to a quarter um, can be attributed to uh, this so-called uh,
0: birth order effect, fraternal birth order effect. Interesting. So, yeah. so there's a correlation between how many sons a woman has had and mm-hmm. the probability of a son be, uh, being homosexual later in life. Yeah. So That's more, true. more sons is positively correlated with that.
1: Yeah. And the, well, at least the last estimate I knew of um, each Subsequent son increase each each son increases the subsequent son's chance of being gay by about a third of the base rate. Hmm. So if you think of a male has about male or random in the population has about a three percent chance of being gay, then if he has one older brother, it's a third of that, so he has a four percent chance, and then hmm. two older brothers, a five percent. So you need like you know whatever it is forty eight older brothers to probably be gay. It's not like it, you know, <laughs> right right right. That's a lot of older brothers. It doesn't happen yet.
0: Interesting. Um, and so what? Like, what do we know about? You know, are there any? Um, is is the prenatal or perinatal environment the hormonal environment that that a woman has in her uterus while she is pregnant? Has that been changing over time in any systematic way? Mm. Like, I there's been a lot of chatter recently about like things in our diet and yeah, things in yeah, yeah. the environment that yeah. are having say estrogenic versus androgenic effects is, is, are there environmental factors that we know are making hormonal environments in utero, say more estrogenic or androgenic or, th- yeah. or anything like that?
1: Sorry. I did yeah, I didn't see where you're going with that. I get it. Um, yeah, no doubt. And I mean, that's something that's not unique to humans. Like there are, um, well, there's a bat species where males, um, sometimes lactate and it's thought that it's because the fruit they eat has high estrogens and so I mean it's you know a, probably across species there are environmental um hormones that have similar effects um in, in the body once they get in there and um so that seems to be the case in people too but I don't really know you know the extent of it and I don't think that the data are very good on sort of how how big these effects are and what what consequences they're having um but I also don't know that literature very well, so you know, <laughs> I don't know how expertly I can I can answer that question.
0: Got it. Um, so what uh, what other types of things have you published on recently, or is your lab working on? What are some of the big questions um, that you've been thinking about? Well,
1: yeah, that's thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, the research in our lab sort of is two pronged, and it's all focused on sort of understanding sex differences, sexual variation. Um, And so the one is the sort of evolutionary questions. And so we tend to focus on sexual selection and and understanding that we're using voice, but we're looking at lots of characteristics, faces, and so on. Um, And then the other prong is more of the sort of proximate developmental stuff like uh, sex hormones. And so one one of our lines of research recently is looking at Um, people with uh, an endocrine condition called IHH, idiopathic hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, which is a mouthful, so IHH works. Um, And people with this condition could be both sexes, produce very low levels of gonadal hormones before they're born, and then none after they're born until they would never do that, until they get on hormone replacement therapy sometime usually after the normal time of puberty, because they don't go start going through puberty. The, and the reason why it has to do with their hypothalamus, part of the brain, just never, it doesn't have the cells or they're non-functional to start off the pathway to tell the gonads to produce gonadal hormones. So the hypothalamus doesn't tell the pituitary to tell the gonads to produce gonadal hormones. And so we can study people with this condition and say, what are the effects on males or on females of having been exposed to very low levels of androgens like testosterone or estrogens like estradiol on psychology and behavior Um, and so that's been really interesting to us because um, that condition IHH was almost unstudied there was one paper published in 1981 I think looking at psychology in people with this condition and it provides a really useful source of information I mean not just to help people with IHH and, and make decisions about hormone replacement therapy and so on and understand themselves and their psychology a little bit better, um, and clinicians, um, helping people with IHH, but also helping us understand sort of the processes of the sexual differentiation of the brain psychology and behavior in humans. Um, and you know, one of the really useful from a scientific standpoint, um, aspects of this condition is that people with IHH rarely know they have this condition until they don't go through puberty. So it's not like they're treated differently as a result of their condition by parents, physicians, or whatever, because if you don't test for it in the first few months of life, then you can't test for it hmm. until until the normal time of puberty. So it's been really useful for that. And we published a few papers, but we're, we're just realizing that, um, And I and I hope, you know, I'm very grateful to the to all of the, our research participants, and I and I want to start sort of working more with uh, you know communicating our findings with them and the broader uh, medical community to see how it can you know can help people understand how gonadal hormones you know play important roles in our in the development of our brains and behavior.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> any other topics that you think are worth discussing that have been top of mind for you, just in terms of sex differences in your research?
1: Oh, let me think. Um, there's so many, uh, so many papers right now. Uh, some of these things I don't want to talk about because I, I'm going to publish them, and I want them to be more interesting than if I if I already said what I'm going to say. Um, you know, one I, I mentioned that this big review paper um, that we published this year as well um, on Oh, what's the name of it? I don't remember, but it's about it's something like, you know, uh, contest competition and the evolution of human males. I think maybe that was the the title of it. But it was really reviewing data on how strong sexual selection was in our male ancestors, um, what sorts of traits it produced, when these traits evolved, you know, are these really common to all the great apes? Are they really specific to um, us and our closest relatives, chimps? Are they specific to hominins or maybe even our own genus homo and sort of tracing the evolution as best we can of when these various sexual dimorphisms that evolved in in males and why and you know traits that seem to be involved in male male contest competition like bigger body size and aggression and and uh you know greater muscle mass and things like that um and i tried to i published something like this in 2010 that I'm really glad I wrote, I'm really glad I published it, because it felt like it kind of needed to be said, because there were, the research on in the literature on sexual selection and human males at the time mostly seemed to be saying our traits evolved to attract females. Beards, why do we have those? Because females find it sexy. Deep voices, why do we have that? Because females find it sexy. And what I was seeing was that these traits have much bigger effects on appearance of fighting ability and formidability among males or they directly help win fights and they're maybe not attractive at all like physical hmm. aggression same sex aggression um and so i, I said <clears throat> i said those things first in a in a review paper that's you know been cited a lot um in 2010 but i think i was mostly talking to psychologists and so in this review paper i, I collaborated with an, a, a biologist and an anthropologist And I really wanted to talk more to my fellow anthropologists, who I don't think that that message from 2010 ever sunk in for most of them. And so I tried to talk much more about, rather than the behavioral things and some sort of basic anatomical things, a lot more about um, hominin evolution in the fossil record, um, non-human primates, the genetic evidence, and so on, population genetic evidence, the kind of data that anthropologists, biological anthropologists tend to focus on more, um, because I wanted to to speak to my fellow anthropologists a little bit, a little bit more. So I, I feel good about that. And I, um, it only came out recently. It's been cited four times. And for all I know, I, I was the one who cited it four times. I don't, I don't remember. Um, but I, I do hope that, that that contribution um, gains some traction because, you know, I, do, I feel like anthropologists uh, in general, sort of look at, look at human sexual selection and sexual dimorphism and, and yeah, the wrong way. I don't
0: know.
1: <laughs> underemphasize it.
0: I see. And so like, I mean, kind of circling back to stuff we talked about earlier in your view. So when you look at all of the sex differences in humans and you consider them in phylogenetic context, comparing them to other species, humans are quite sexually dimorphic, um, probably more so than you would expect if you uh, just only looked at raw mass. And so so, just can you just clarify again, like, what do you think that means in terms of the level of male-male competition for mates in our lineage?
1: I think that um, it, it suggests that the level of male-male competition for mates in our ancestors over the last several hundred thousand years, let's say, was uh, maybe pretty average for a primate, which is pretty high. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, for a mammal. And, you know, we're not an extreme. We're not like, you know, gorillas or orangutans, but I think it was pretty high. And I also think that something that gets maybe lost sometimes when you're looking within a society is that a lot of that male competition for mates is not just males within a society asserting dominance over each other and and getting a resource because others defer, because if you don't, I'm going to kick your butt. Um, But there's also coalitional aggression, that that's something Mm. that happens in chimps. And it's happened in every human society. We're seeing it today, sadly. And that's something that's been important to our ancestors as well, that groups of males will attack other groups of males, kill those males, some of those males, and you know, abduct females, um, mate with the females in that group. There's genetic evidence that that's been happening for thousands of years in our lineage. Um, but for all we know, millions of years, given that really similar patterns occur in chimpanzees, um, and we share a common ancestor with them, you know, seven million years ago or something. Um, so anyway, I think that's an important form of male
0: competition for mates that... Um, mm-hmm. It's some, not just individuals some, against individuals, but it's the right. ability to form competing groups.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, plenty of anthropologists and other social scientists, they focus on that, you know, and coalitional aggression, how important that is. Um, but other ones who are just sort of trying to estimate um, how strong was sexual selection in our male ancestors, uh, maybe missed that because they're looking only at
0: within group variation.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, well, David, we've covered a lot. Um, is there anything that you want to reiterate or emphasize um, based on everything that we said before we sign off? Um, let me think here.
1: I guess there isn't. Um, maybe one thing. Yeah, I have two messages, I guess. One, one is something that I like to i realized several years ago that i wanted to tell my students when i when i first introduced them to the idea of sexual selection in humans and i got to a point in the lecture where i thought i'm worried that i gave you the wrong impression that um i've depicted a picture of humanity where males and females are so different we might as well be different species and we can't understand each other and you know i show this uh the the cover of um, men are from mars and women are from venus and i say I, i'm worried i gave you this impression um when truly and then i show a nice picture of our beautiful blue planet you know we're from earth and you know we're the same species males and females have almost the same dna and we're similar on many many dimensions however there are somewhat dimensions where we differ a lot and the interesting thing is that we can use evolutionary theory and in particular sexual selection theory to make predictions about where those sex differences will will lie and even, you know, the direction of those sex differences and so on. And that's interesting because it it allows us to use the tools of evolutionary biology to understand ourselves and our differences. But I also don't want, it it just feel like it's a false impression to say, to, to give them to only emphasize the differences and not emphasize not only how similar we are in many dimensions, but also the degree of overlap and even the traits that show sex differences. So that's one thing. And the other, is I sometimes worry that I give this impression that then we're fated to be the way our ancestors were. That, you know, Mm. because it was in our evolutionary past, um, human males are just going to be aggressive and they're, you know, with each other and with females and that sort of thing. And and that's not right. Because, you know, we're incredibly intelligent and social and we respond to social learning and social conditioning. Um, And so there may be factors like, gonadal hormone production that predisposes a brain to like engaging in rough and tumble play and play fighting and to be more to to tend to respond to social situations more with physical aggression than with other things but that it doesn't mean that we're fated to do that because we are highly skilled social learners that you know we can um we can design social programs that, that, you know, minimize or reduce these, or maybe obliterate these sex differences. Um, So, yeah, I think those are maybe two of the sort of takeaway messages that I like to have um, because I don't want to leave people with a a bleak view. I just think it's important for us to understand, um, you know, who we are, what, what causes those things, and maybe sort of what we're up against as well.
0: Hmm. All right, well, this has been a fascinating fascinating conversation. Uh, Dr. David Putz, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks a lot. Nick.
0: Hey, everyone. I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.